0: Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Well,
1: it is a great joy and a privilege to introduce our preacher for this morning, my dear friend, the Reverend Elizabeth Bumpus. And uh, Elizabeth and I, we were trying to figure out how long we've been friends. It feels like Decades, at least. So, uh, yeah, we were we were mere children when we met. And, um, uh, but uh, she is a native of Mississippi, and as an Alabama boy, our uh, neighbors to the west, I won't make any of the jokes that we often make in Alabama about Mississippi. She served for a long time in this diocese at Holy Cross over on Sullivan's Island at Camp St. Christopher out on Seabrook Island and then was a missionary in Uganda where she was ordained a priest and has most recently been serving at St. James over on James Island. So basically, you left Mississippi and went to all the islands, the Sea Islands, and covered them all. But we're really blessed that you are here. She's gifted in, in the area of spiritual life and, and discipleship um, and a, a really gifted preacher. So welcome. We're glad you're here. Let us pray for our preacher and for one another. Lord, we thank you for our sister Elizabeth. As she preaches your word, would you anoint her for that work? Thank you for the work she's already done in the study, and we trust your spirit was with her in that. And now, as she preaches your word, may it be living and active right to our hearts, Lord, and transform us more into your likeness. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Can
0: you all hear me okay? I just don't like wearing these things and I usually come across sounding really loud. Um, Anyway, it's good to be here with you this morning. Yes, I did grow up in Mississippi. I didn't grow up in Charleston. I didn't grow up near the ocean. But when I was a kid, there were a couple of movies that put great fear in me of the ocean. So I know I'm dating myself here, but the first was The Poseidon Adventure. And I'm talking about the original, not the remake. It came out in 1972. Raise your hand if you saw the original Poseidon Adventure. It's about this cruise ship that gets hit by a ginormous rogue tidal wave, and it capsizes, and everybody on board dies except for this little band of people who, you know, kind of claw their way to rescue. Well, that, made, that movie made me afraid of ever being on boats on the ocean, and then, of course, there was Jaws. Who wasn't traumatized by watching that movie when it first came out in the theater? And again, I'm dating myself because I think that was 1975. When you watch it on TV now, you kind of laugh at it. It seems a little bit silly. But for me, it made me so afraid I couldn't go swimming in swimming pools for a while. Now, the only time I ever went deep sea fishing, and I can't believe I let my friends talk me into this, we went, um, I was here in Charleston, and we went out in the Gulf Stream, which is about 50 miles offshore, and um, there were thunderstorms all around us. And the captain kept having us pull in our lines because he kept having to dodge the waterspouts. God. I I didn't enjoy that day at all, except I did catch a 25-pound amberjack, and and so that made it worth it. That was fun. But for me, I prefer to enjoy the beauty of the ocean from the safety of the beach. But even there, it's not safe, right? Because we've all seen what powerful tsunamis can do. The ocean is scary, and it's it's an unpredictable place. Well, interestingly, but not surprisingly then, that is the the image of raging waters is used as a metaphor all throughout scripture for the forces of evil, disorder, and chaos in the world. Here are just a few quick examples. So in the beginning, in the creation story, the world is described as a dark, watery, chaotic place. It was formless and void before God began his creative work. And then in the story of Noah, the floodwaters rise and destroy all life on earth. And then we have the imagery of Jonah, um, who's cast into the raging sea and swallowed by the well, like we just read in this passage, and we hear Jonah crying out to God to save him out of that predicament. And then in Isaiah 17, the metaphor for, of chaotic water is used to describe Um, nations and people at war. Woe to the many nations that rage. They rage like the raging sea. Woe to the people who roar. They roar like the roaring of great waters. And in Psalm 69, David uses the imagery of floodwaters to describe his life as he cries out to God. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and the floods engulf me. And finally, while the great white shark was a symbol of danger for me in the ocean, in Scripture, it's the Leviathan, that great sea monster that lurks beneath the waves that represents dark forces, as described by Job, Isaiah, and Revelation. But in Scripture, God clearly clearly declares that the Lord rules over the chaos of the sea. So Psalm 93, mightier than the thunder of great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And the Psalm that we just read, Psalm 29, we're reminded that the voice of the Lord is over the waters, The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. His voice is powerful and majestic. And he sits enthroned over the flood. And then one of my favorite verses. The Lord assures Israel through the prophet Isaiah. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And this leads me to our gospel reading this morning from Matthew. Both Jesus and Peter walk on the water in the middle of a windstorm on the raging waters of the Sea of Galilee. Everybody knows this story. And I have heard some wonderful, wonderful sermons about having the faith to do impossible things. I think about John Ortberg, Ort, Ortberg's book, If You Want to Walk on Water, you Got to Get Out of the Boat. Y'all remember that one? It was really popular back in the day. And I've heard a lot of really good and important reminders to keep our eyes on Jesus and off of our circumstances. But how would first century Jews have understood the meaning of this event? And not only this one, but something similar that happens in Matthew 8. Remember when they're all in the boat and Jesus fell asleep and the storm comes and all the disciples are afraid they're about to die and they wake him up? And he calms the storm just by speaking to it. What message would first century Jews have taken away from these events? They would have recognized the metaphor in scripture playing out in real life before them. Jesus is the Lord, God in the flesh, the one who overcomes the forces of evil and chaos in the world. It's just the good news. This event is preaching that God's kingdom, his rule, and his reign have come into the world to defeat the powers of evil and darkness. This is the message they would have gotten from this event. And I want to pause here for a second. And I want to share a personal story with you. Um, this, the Lord brought this to my mind as I was reflecting on this passage This past week. And some of you may have heard it, and I apologize for the repeat. Um, But this happened about 12 years ago. I went on a five day silent retreat at Metkin Abbey in Monk's Corner. Raise your hand if you've been to Metkin Abbey. It's a wonderful place. If you haven't been, you should go. Well, I went out there, and I was desperately needing direction from the Lord. But I was also really interested in the lifestyle of these monks, you know, they they devote themselves to work and prayer and following the rule of St. Benedict, and they they place a high value on hospitality. So I was anticipating some interaction with them during my time there. I was looking forward to that. So I arrived and got checked, uh, went to the little gift shop and got checked in, but I wasn't greeted by a monk. It was a volunteer. I was a little disappointed by that, but I thought, okay, well, I'll have lots of opportunities during the week to engage the monks. So I went to my room, I put my things up, and I went for a walk around the gardens, and I passed monks on the sidewalk, and I was ready to engage them, but they kept their heads bowed, and they moved right past me. They didn't acknowledge my presence at all. Now, I know they keep hours of silence during the day, but not 24-7. I went the whole first two days of my retreat there without a monk, even so much as making eye contact with me. And I thought, wow, this is really strange for people who place a high value, right, on hospitality. But I also thought, oh, well, you know, they probably get tired of people invading their space all the time. So I didn't really think that much about it. But my first two days there was really dry. I couldn't hear from the Lord. I was struggling. And on the third morning, I woke up really early, just after dawn. It was overcast. It was cloudy. There were low-hanging clouds. It was kind of a misty fog going on. And I decided to walk the prayer labyrinth. So for those of you who aren't familiar with what a prayer labyrinth is, it's simply a place to walk and pray and meditate. You follow the path inside the labyrinth, and it's meant to help you focus on God. It's not new agey at all. So I entered the labyrinth, and I began to follow the path, and I just started pouring my heart out to God. And after about 15 or 20 minutes, I grew frustrated because it felt like my prayers were rising no higher than those low-hanging clouds. And I was real, I just, was, I was desperate. And so I just stopped walking, and I turned my face up, and I just stood there, and I began to cry. And I was crying out to God, where are you? Two or three seconds later, I looked down, and in front of me is a monk on a bicycle riding down the road that's adjacent to the prayer labyrinth, and he's waving. And I thought, that's weird. I thought I was out here by myself. So I turned around. I'm looking for who he's waving at. There was nobody out there but me. I looked back towards him, and he's still waving, only this time he's doing like this. You, I'm waving at you. And I thought, not a single monk has acknowledged my presence you know, this is, this is really strange. But all of a sudden, in my spirit, I heard the Lord say these words to me. I see you and I hear you. I watched the monk disappear down the road, and I'm standing there in disbelief. But I felt this warm peace come over me. And I thought, did God just wave at me and say, I see you and I hear you? It felt so personal. You know, like seven billion people on the planet, and the Lord just said to me, I see you and I hear you. I finished walking the prayer labyrinth, reflecting on what had happened, and I headed back to my room, and I started to talk myself out of it. Well, that was just a coincidence, Elizabeth. I get inside the building, and I notice this little library down the hall from my bedroom, so I decide to go and sit in there for a little while. And I sat down, and I noticed this little book on the coffee table, so I picked it up. Ten Steps to Growing in Humility was written by one of the former abbots at Metkin. So I opened it, and I began to read. And as God is my witness, here's what it said. Step one to growing in humility. Believe that God sees you and hears you. No way. There's no way. I couldn't believe it. This cannot be a coincidence. The very words the Lord had just said to me, what are the chances of that? It was confirmation, you know, that I didn't imagine it and that I wasn't supposed to write it off. In other words, pay attention, Elizabeth, because this is important. That encounter continues to have a powerful impact on me to this day. And I hear, I often hear the words ringing in my ears, you know, when circumstances in my life just don't make sense and I'm tempted to believe that he's forgotten me. But I left Mebkin, but I didn't leave with the direction I went seeking. I didn't get any answers, but the lesson that I did leave with was that growing in awareness of his very real and tangible presence is more important than any answers I thought I needed. I just needed him. Now, you're probably wondering, what does that have to do with Jesus and Peter walking on the water? I promise I'm going somewhere with this, so just hang in there with me. So as I was reflecting on how first century Jews would have recognized the meaning of this event, you know, Jesus is the one as Lord who overcomes the power of evil and chaos in the world. That's the metaphor that they understood. I started to think about Peter walking on the water, and how that played into this metaphor found all throughout Scripture. And it occurred to me that every day when we wake up and walk outside the front door into the world, we're essentially getting out of the boat. To me, Peter getting out of the boat is not so much about his faith as it is an image for the reality of all of our lives. We all get out of the boat every single day into the chaotic waters of the fallen world. And if we continue with the metaphor, then we see that Peter couldn't walk on the water for more than a minute or two because he's not God. He doesn't have the power to overcome chaos and evil in the world but the one who does reaches out and saves him from sinking beneath the waves It's the good news again but if I might suggest this it's not even enough just to keep our eyes on Jesus in this chaotic world if it doesn't include Practicing the presence of God. Because we need to believe that he always sees us and he always hears us. Amen? Are y'all tracking with me? But keeping your eyes on Jesus can mean different things to different people. But I think that you would agree with me that it starts with prayer. But even crying out to God as I did that day at Mepkin Abbey doesn't have the same calming effect as the awareness of the reality of his tangible presence. Knowing with certainty that he sees you and he hears you. No matter how choppy the water is, no matter how fierce the wind, he's there. But we don't always believe that. No, especially when all we hear from heaven is silence, right? I think there is a real felt need in the church today for the people of God to know him and not just know about him. Knowing him is the great blessing that we've been promised through the prophet Joel and and reminded of in the letter to the Hebrews. I will be their God and they will be my people No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. I'll pour out my spirit on everybody. So many people that I talk to have never encountered the spirit of the living God. And they wonder if he exists. And if he does, does he really care about their lives? In the last couple of decades, there's been a sort of a resurgence in this interest in Christian meditation, contemplation, contemplative prayer. And many people have discovered the little book, Practicing the Presence of God. How many of you are familiar with that one? It's written by Brother Lawrence. He was a 17th century French monk. And in that book, he says this, I cannot imagine... How religious persons can live satisfied without the practice of the presence of God. For my part, I keep myself retired with him in the depths of the center of my soul as much as I can. And while I'm with him, I fear nothing. That's kind of the heart of it, don't you think? As pilgrims in this beautiful but Chaotic and broken world, how do we live? How do we get out of the boat every day and make our way through turbulent waters, battling anxiety and fear and all the forces of evil that come against us? How do we do it? By becoming more and more aware and living in His real and tangible presence, believing That he always sees you and hears you. All it leads, it leads to greater spiritual discernment and wisdom. It leads to greater capacity to love your neighbor as yourself because, you know, you become like the one you spend time with. It gives greater patience, not just for other people, but with the Lord, you know, as he leads you through floodwaters. You're way more willing to trust the process. It leads to greater joy and peace because even though getting out of the boat every day can be really daunting, you will know with certainty that you're not alone and that in the end, it's all good. Think about Romans 8, 28. It leads to a greater capacity to enjoy the blessings of this life and to be present in the moment. Because that's a gift. It doesn't, however, alleviate suffering. But it leads to a greater capacity to endure suffering, just as Jesus did. So in general, this is how we navigate the raging waters of the chaotic seas. I don't have time this morning to do like an in-depth teaching on, you know, ways to practice the presence of God. There are lots of books out there you can read. I would love to talk to anybody about it. I can talk for hours about it. This is my passion. I'm happy to sit down with you. But I will say this for now. Practicing the presence of God is not the same as a 15-minute devotional in the morning as helpful as that is, and it's not an intellectual exercise. So it's different from a Bible study, as important as that is. It's a discipline that begins first and foremost with silence and solitude, and we all have a fear of silence and solitude in our lives. It requires being intentional. You have to carve out time for this. We have to place ourselves in his presence. Because remember, he's always present with us, but we're not always present with him. The good news of the kingdom is that Jesus made a way through his death and resurrection for us to be reconciled to the Father in such a way that we can know him, not just know about him, but know him intimately. Here on earth, on this side of heaven, we don't have to wait until we die. So don't settle for less as you seek to follow the way of Jesus. And getting out of the boat will be a whole lot less scary because he's with you and you know it. I want to end with this verse from Revelation 21. 1 it says then i saw a new heaven and a new earth but the new heaven, the first earth and the first heaven had passed away and there was no longer any sea the metaphor carries on to the very end of the scriptures the chaotic waters of the sea will be absent in the new heaven and the new earth there will be no more evil no more chaos no more tears just the presence of God for all eternity. And for that, we can all say, thanks be to God.